Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to episode 11. Today we have volume 2 of the Small Business Series, featuring interviews with Russ from Needle Drop Records, Jesse from Good Witch Yoga, and Matt from New Ethic Pizza. I wasn't able to interview all of the local business owners, but I did the best I could. With that in mind, my friend Brian Jones is a really good artist, and he does some great tattoo work. If you ever need a tattoo, make sure you check out Art to Zen on Stone Road. As always, you can find us on the web at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. There you will find links to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as streaming options. Feedback and comments can be sent using the form at the bottom of the website. Coming up is my interview with Russ from Needle Drop Records, but first I'm going to tell you how easy it is to create a podcast with Anchor. The first interview is with Russ from Needle Drop Records. Needle Drop is a record store located in the South Wedge of downtown Rochester, New York. All right, so describe your background and your upbringing. Born and raised in Rochester. You know, parents split up when I was about five. I moved from Fairport to Webster and, you know, went there my whole school year, graduated, and I don't know. That's about, I got into punk and hardcore around then, like middle school onward, but didn't really start going to shows until later. Just because I didn't have a car and Webster so far removed from the city, you know, I didn't take buses at the time. So to get a ride to a show or a record store was kind of tough living so far away. I guess you were kind of starting to talk about it a little bit. What was your connection to our local music scene before you uh, opened up Needle Drop? I mean, to go back to just getting into the music I got into, I... I was always more on the fringe of everything. Like I didn't really like pop music the way a lot of kids did, you know, memories of, uh, I remember hearing like Morrissey on the, on like WBR back in the day and, and weird metal shows that I did not know what they were when you're just like flipping through the radio stations, probably like Sonic Insanity and Sudden Death Overtime, um, you know, stuff playing the extreme music. And I didn't know where to buy it. You know, I just, I would stumble upon it every now and then. Um, my cousin Adam, who went to Fairport and we were the same age, he kind of got me into the more underground local scene. Um, I remember, actually, I remember specifically, he, we went to, uh, I think we were either at Fantastic Records or he bought it for me there, but it was when the Standfast CD came out. And he was friends with all those guys, obviously, because he was in Fairport and they, you know, some of them are there still, but he, uh, he's like, here, take the CD. It's awesome. You know, just came out and I'm like, okay, you know, I was listening to like the Misfits and Black Flag and Minor Threat and more mainstream accessible punk music and not so much underground stuff. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And just knowing that it came from Rochester uh, was pretty amazing, especially from kids, you know, within a few years of me, <clears throat> you know, I was probably like 16 or 17 at the time. And, you know, if anyone doesn't know, Josh, you put that CD out. So I guess we had crossed paths before ever, uh, you know, just through that, which is cool. Um, 
but going to like shows, I had some friends, I worked in Penfield and they, you know, they had local bands just doing their own things. It was like the battle of the bands. You'd go see stuff like that at Water Street or Webster had like a kind of a street punk, like ska scene, which was, you know, so I got into a lot of that, but I wasn't going to those shows yet, but we'd go to downtown when my buddy's band would play and. I forget the, it was like some church, like off East Ave or something, but they would do local shows. And then I think I remember going to the Fairport Teen Center and that's where like some, I don't know, I guess some touring bands played. Did you book shows there? I would assume you did at some point. I didn't book a ton of shows there. I don't think I might've booked one or two, but I was definitely at a lot of shows and that was probably, I had a distro back then. I, I definitely yeah. had some had some pretty success uh, selling records out there, obviously, because those kids were always eating up all the CDs and stuff. Yeah, the Fairport Teen Center has come up uh, quite a few times on these conversations because that's obviously where a lot of kids kind of got into hardcore. Because as we as we both know, Fairport was a pretty big uh, breeding ground for hardcore in the late '90s and yeah. early 2000s. So yeah, even even earlier, like I mean, just to skip skip ahead a little bit, like I met. Um, like Brad Dingman, he was like my first roommate outside of living at my parents' house. And he was in Contempt and, what, Eternal Youth and probably some other bands. Uh, Break of Dawn, obviously. Um, but he would tell me about, you know, the day, because I think he grew up in Fairport. And, you know, he would talk about those shows, going to like Syracuse every week to see Shelter Play or Youth of Today or whoever was just still active at that point, Earth Crisis, all that. But, um, yeah, just to know that that was happening in Rochester was really cool, and it drew me into that. And then I forget who gave me the CD, but I got really into Strike Anywhere when I was, like, 16 or 17. And I saw a flyer that was, like, Stand Fast, Strike Anywhere, I think Count Me Out, and, like, you know, a couple other bands. And I'm pretty sure you booked that show, but it was at the VFW Hall in Fairport which was like down the street from my dad's house. So I remember going to that and I think it was the first time I saw Stand Fast, definitely the first time I saw Strike Anywhere. And it just like blew my mind. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, you know, first of all, like I'm watching Stand Fast play these songs live after hearing the CD forever. And then to see Strike Anywhere play like this band that wasn't from here, you know, that was just, it was cool to see people within our age group booking these shows and bringing these bands to town and just like, it's not in a concert hall. It's not at a bar, you know? Um, so to see that, you know, I'd gone to warp tour and I'd seen the misfits a bunch of times at like water street. So those were concerts for me. Um, but I wasn't going to the local show. So that was really cool. And then from there, it was just, I remember meeting you. I think the first time it was, at a St. Joe's show. And I specifically remember I was wearing a negative approach shirt and you're like, Hey man, nice band. Or, you know, I, I love that band. One of my favorites. And I was like, yeah, me too. I love them. And you introduced yourself as Josh. And you know, that was that, like, that's how I met you. And I probably remember like buying records from you or something, but I forget what show that was something around 2001 probably stand fast again or trial by fire. I, I remember some shows like that happening pretty early there, but yeah. And I just got sucked into it. You know, I moved to Buffalo in 2003 for a summer to try to get away. And I think that's when I booked my first show. 
and it was like fun but a disaster at the same time i remember booking like daughters uh that like relapse band zombie that's like a soundtrack type band and a whole bunch of other bands that had to get like thrown on to make it happen and the show went so late that zombie couldn't play and daughters never showed up and it was just like i felt so bad you know i didn't know what the hell i was doing i didn't know about time you know curfews and noise ordinances and stuff like that and just running a show on time even if people weren't there yet like just you know get there early and you know hopefully see the bands you want to see or show up late and miss a bunch of stuff but yeah it was fun I, I tried to book more shows I don't know I think the biggest show we booked was like Righteous Jams in Rochester 2003 that was like probably the next show I booked me and Alex Byrne did that one. Like, and that was cool. The people from like Canada coming out for that show, like Righteous Jams and uh, was it the wrong side? I think Dump Truck. That was a lot of fun. But yeah, I, obviously going along with going to shows and whatnot, you start buying records because a lot of the music you had to you had to buy it. It wasn't being played on the radio. So I got into record collecting that way. Like I'd go to Fantastic Records when that existed. Um, you know, there'd always be something I didn't know what it was. Like I remember buying all the records you put out there. Like it was cool that, you know, I remember getting like seven inches, Building on Fire and The Dense and The End and like just whatever was local and like out at that point. Um and then, you know, whatever was in the magazines. I remember when Tragedy came out, that was like a big deal. And um, you'd start ordering stuff, you know, because you want the record. And now it's just way too easy. Like, everyone can get Spotify and, you know, hear the history of hardcore punk or whatever music they want in, like, a day, you know. And it's just, it's too easy. But it's cool at the same time. There's just no effort that needs to be made. And you ended up playing a couple of bands around that time, or did you start playing in bands a little later on then? Yeah, so I think the first band I did, it was with Brad Dingman, John Olek, who was in Standfast, his buddy Ed, I think, sang. And we did like, it was a Halloween show at St. Joe's, and we did like a Misfits cover band. And it was awesome. It was like so cool. Everyone, I think the Disaster played, they covered maybe the Ramones, something like that. And I think the Funeral played. Um, I have the flyer somewhere, but that was like the first show I played just playing music live in front of an audience. And it was cool. And then I did that band black mask, which was like very short lived, very like basic, we, you know, thrash. I think we were trying to be like Charles Bronson or something silly and just short songs. You know, I was not. I wouldn't call myself any kind of musician now or then, but that was, uh, you know, we played six songs, broke up mid show. It was kind of cool. Rory, Rory and Holly sang, I think it was the first band Rory did after stand fast. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Like it just, it was cool. We played with some amazing bands like page 99 majority rule, uh, uh, the first show we played was like Hot Cross, um, Off Minor, like all these like screamo bands. 
that was like in a basement in Oswego. It was fun. But then after that, me and Jim Callahan, who I think you've already interviewed, right? Yeah, part um, two of that will be out before this. Cool. Yeah, so I ended up starting a few bands with him, Eric Lepore, who was in Break of Dawn, and my buddy Jimmy, he sang. And like Ryan McDonald, he kind of like helped form the band, but then he quickly left and um I'm trying to think if i'm missing anyone i think that was it but yeah, we did this band called memory loss that was kind of cool it was like a little thrashier i remember covering like avail and dri at the same show just because they wanted to do some covers and it was just like pull a band name out of a hat and see what happens it was cool but the last couple bands i did um was with Jim Callahan uh, on drums, but uh, Brandon Farrell, who ran a really good record label, No Way Records out of Richmond. And he was in a million bands like Direct Control, Government Warning, um, Career Suicide. You know, he was kind of a big deal. One of the best drummers, musicians I've ever played with in my life. We did a band called Obsessor that, he started in Richmond, then moved up here to Rochester and we formed it and made it an actual band. And we did another band together, me, him and Alex Douglas, who was in skate corpse in 17th class. We did a band called commando and that ended in 2016 when Brandon passed away, um, unexpectedly about four years ago. But, you know, I haven't done anything since then. I just, I love, playing but finding time now is very hard i have a store i have a child um i have two jobs you know like my store and another job that i work at so just finding time to do that is it's so hard the older you get the less time you have so i guess kind of shifting gears to the record store what was your main motivation to open needle drop i graduated rit in like 2010 and like I said, I'd always collected records once I got into like more underground music. So, you know, I was, I would hit up every record store I could. Like when I lived in Buffalo in 2003, there was like Home of the Hits and I think Sit and Spin was still there. Um, you know, all these like punk underground stores, like here in Rochester, we had Fantastic Records. There was Ultrasonic Sound, which would like, turned into analog shock, which is the store that I used to go to, um, on South Ave. And, you know, like, did you ever go to shows at analog shock? Like, were you going to those? Yeah. Yeah. I put on a couple of shows there too. And yeah, I definitely yeah. went to pretty much all the ones they had there. Yeah. And that was like, you know, th like those are the type of record stores I love. And Rochester's always had a good, good selection of stores, but I felt like there wasn't like an underground punk hardcore metal store. And at the time, 2011, I tried to move to Austin, Texas, because I'd graduated. I had an opportunity to house it. I don't know if you've been there or not, but there's just so many good record stores, like just blows everything away. So I would just hang out at the record stores because I was like jobless for two months while I was looking for work and then ended up coming back due to uh, getting into a car accident, which just sent me back home to Rochester. I don't know. I got a job at the restaurant I work at, like right when I got back. And this is like July 2011 and i'd always wanted to either open up a restaurant which is what i went to school for i'd always worked in like pizza places or you know higher-end restaurants and thought that would be a lot of fun it kept like 
I don't know, getting into my head, like maybe you should open a record store, you know, like try that. And I remember going on Craigslist and just looking at places for rent. And I think the first link I clicked was like the store I'm at now. It was like dirt cheap. It was like rent will be even cheaper if you build it out, like, you know, change the carpet or whatever. So I called them up, checked it out. And I was like, wow, this place is awesome. And within a few months, had the store open. Like, I think it was like September 1st, we signed the lease. And then we were open in November. You know, it's crazy to think, but I'm coming up on nine years this November. And, you know, I didn't know. I, I had friends telling me, why are you doing this? Like, like what's, you know, you think you're going to be able to stay open? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just got to try it, you know? Like, it's just, it's not too much money. Um, I think it'll work and I don't know. I, I just listened to myself and uh, the first couple of years were great. Like, like records were still really strong. Um, I don't think the bubble had burst yet. Like the, the gimmicks of like record store day and whatnot, but you know, I just wanted to open up a place that I would like to go to and people, that I knew from like shows and whatnot and like the more underground scene, like they would want to come and hang out at and find good music, like new and old stuff. That was my original vision. And then, you know, being a business owner, you learn that you have to adapt to your, to whatever the market is. Um, you got to listen to your customers and all that. And I think my customer service skills that I learned in the restaurant helped me with that. Cause I would just talk to everyone and, you know, you listen to them and you kind of like, you know, quote unquote, take their order. Um, and you just learn, like you're constantly learning. And I think that helped me stay open till this day. So it was just my passion for vinyl and feeling that I could kind of make something that was worthwhile in Rochester, you know, that's what happened. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess kind of piggybacking off, off of, uh, you know, understanding what, what the customer, what the people come in and buy records like, um, Obviously, as you kind of said in the beginning of the interview, I, I know you more from the hardcore and punk scene. Yeah. Um, but as but as far as I know, Needle Drop has a, a much wider variety of music available. Describe all the kinds of music that you do carry there, I guess. Off the bat, I wanted it to be punk, hardcore, and metal. And I quickly learned that that's very hard. Like, you know, there's a market for it, but it's not big enough in this town to sustain a business. You get all walks of life. People coming in uh, asking you, hey, do you have this? Do you have that? Like, you know, do you have this jazz record? Do you have the psychedelic record? Do you have this classic rock record? And, you know, you just start having people come through the door and selling you stuff or asking you to order new things because, you know, there's always records being made. And it just grew from like that initial, you know, punk hardcore genre to, you know, I've got a big psychedelic section. I've got a lot of jazz. I've got weird experimental music, you know, like noise and electronic and you know, I've got stereo gear when it's fixed and sellable. I've got, you know, random shirts, tapes. Like, it, it's just, it's like a miniature, like, you know, house of guitars. There's just piles of stuff everywhere at this point. And, you know, I know where everything is. Um, so if you ask me, like, I can definitely find it for you if I have it. But um, I'd like to think I have a little bit of everything. But my, my focus is still, and a lot of my customers say it, they're like, you know, you're the best in town or the area. Like, people come out of the way just to just to buy punk and hardcore records there. So I like to always have something on the back burner, you know, tucked away for people that come out of town be like, Hey, do you have that, you know, certain record? And I might have it. And it's cool to see a customer get happy, you know, when you 
when you have that thing that they've been looking for. I know that feeling and you know, I'm sure you do too. Like it's uh, the never ending quest for music, at least in a physical form. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think uh, speaking of like collectors and stuff, uh, I'm guessing you still collect vinyl yourself and obviously um, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> have you been able to pick up like any cool stuff while running the store? For my personal collection, I still try to stick to like punk and you know, I, I never called myself a metalhead, but I have a lot of metal records. You know, my dream, like what got me into records, and I've told this story before, is like when I figured out who the Misfits were, like in, I don't know, eighth grade or something, you know, you'd see the skull, people would be wearing it, and then you'd figure out what that is. And then you want their records or whatever, you just want to hear the music. And it was like really hard to hear their music, at least to get the original versions. And I just, I was like, man, I want those Misfits singles, or I want those LPs, and eBay was a thing and you're like, wow, those are really expensive, you know? So I think that made me want to collect that style. And I mean, at this point, like, you know, Misfits is, that's a, that's a probably my biggest collection within my, my thing, but I've got, I've got records that I always dreamed of having as a kid, like, you know, the first minor threat seven inch and negative approach seven inch, you know, things, things that were way too expensive at the time. And that stuff isn't really coming into the store, but I've made connections in town and actually got some really good Misfits records that way. There was a local kid that collected a lot of that and he ended up selling a lot of his collection and I helped him sell it. So I got to buy some cool pieces from it. Roger Murray from Agnostic Front bought like most of it, which was pretty crazy. <laughs> he saw me post oh, a wow. picture. Yeah, it was funny. I posted a picture of a bullet insert on Instagram and like the next day I had a phone call like a, a voicemail from Roger on the answering machine I was like what the fuck like you know this is ridiculous so I called him back and we started talking and um I guess he was looking for that and somebody had tagged him in it that's the power of social media which is pretty cool I still get excited when I get records in that like I really want but I also get excited when you know something comes in that I've heard about and like I finally have a copy of it to listen to and I try not to you know I try not to keep all the records that come in, like that would just I'd go out of business really quick. I wouldn't have anything to sell, but you know, every now and then you'll get a genre like, you know, psychedelic stuff can be really expensive and there's a lot of fans out there for it. So it's cool to get collectible items that you don't care for yourself, but other people do. So then, you know, that's where you make your money in a store, the new stuff, you, you could sell new records all day, but you're not going to make any profit. It's, it's so slim, the margins. Do you still have like items in the back of your mind that like are on your like want list or so to speak? I still need, I still need, uh, the second minor threat seven inch in my eyes. I'd love that. seems like it's always out of my reach. Um, I mean, so it's crazy. Like the, the prices on a lot of these punk records, um, are astronomical. Like, Five, ten years ago, you could buy, I think I bought a copy of Bullet, the second pressing on red vinyl. You know, that was a, I probably paid like two or three hundred bucks for it. And that was a lot of money. I was like, you know, a lot of people would be like, you're an idiot for spending that much. And then you go on eBay recently and like somebody's selling a copy and it's like actually getting bid up to like over $2,000. And I'm like, wow, that was, I guess I got it kind of cheap back then, you know, like it's, it's just. Um, so it's getting harder to buy the stuff that I want because I don't really want to spend that much on a record. I just, I'm not rich. I've got, 
I don't know. It's it's really pricey. So if I'm not mistaken, I think you've organized some record fairs over the years. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So the record fair. Um, for anyone listening that remembers, uh, the Bop Shop record shop used to be at Village Gate, and forever Tom Cohen did uh, the record fairs there, like in the hallways, and it was awesome. Like, you know, I'd always look forward to the spring and fall record fair, and so did hundreds of other people. And I think right at the end of 2011, he was getting kicked out. Unfortunately, like a lot of businesses in the village gate, like lost their lease because the owner wanted to like open up all these restaurants. So he did the last one in 2011, that fall. And then March or whatever the spring one would typically be um, of 2012, there was like no record fair. So it was really awkward. Like everyone wanted to go to one. And at the time, uh, I, had, I did have a business partner at the store, and we were talking like, "Hey, do you want to try to do a record fair?" You know, we were we our shop is right across the street from the German House, which is a really nice venue. You know, it's big enough for like weddings and big events. So, you know, why don't we ask to see if we could do a record fair there? And they were totally cool with it. Um, I think the first one we did was uh, fall of 2012. So every fall and spring, we do one, um, which sucks because this whole shutdown happened, like, I think two or three weeks before uh, the spring one should have been this year. And we had to cancel it. Like, we've never had to cancel. So it was such a letdown. But, you know, it's a big event. We get, like, 40-plus tables of people setting up. Uh, mainly records, but every now and then you'll get some some random, you know, vintage clothing sale uh, or like homemade stuff like zines and whatnot. Um, but it's cool, you know. That's a great place to find good records, and people come from all over for it. Uh, and it's great, you know. It's it's my favorite event that takes place in the South Wedge. Um, a lot of businesses say that because it brings so many people to downtown to like that area where typically, you know, it's, it can get a little dead in the South wedge. It's not park Ave. It's not Monroe Ave. You know, it's, it's like this weird oasis and it can get a little desolate sometimes. So that injection of business is really good to not just the record fair in my store, but to everyone else around it. So it's a, it's a big event, you know, it's uh hopefully, hopefully we'll get to do it in the fall this year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Hopefully, we'll see how everything turns out in the next few months. Um, yeah. So I guess kind of talking about more about the pandemic, um, how has that affected your business thus far? Um, I mean, effectively, it shut down the store uh, from customers, which definitely sucked. But like I said earlier, I, I'm i in a kind of an interesting situation where it's just me there now. Like I'm, you know, I'm the sole owner and proprietor. So I think I hit a point after almost 10 years of kind of working straight, uh, like nine years, but um, I was like, man, I really need a break from this, you know? And then my baby came along and one of the biggest things I was bummed out about was not having time to spend with her. So the shutdown happens. I remember working at the restaurant I'm at and I was like, man, they cut our, you know, they cut the occupancy in half. I was like, this sucks. Like, you know, and we thought it was just going to be like for a couple of days, this and that. And then all of a sudden it's like, 
I think it was a Saturday. That was the last day I worked. And um, they shut everything down. It was like March 14th or whatever. And that included my store too. So like all of a sudden I went from having two jobs to no job. And I just, I didn't let it get to me. You know, I have pretty affordable rent and I have money saved up. So I just, I've been chilling at home and using that time wisely, like cleaning the store, going through things like boxes that have accumulated and just kind of organizing it. So when I do get to reopen, um, it's going to look a little different in there and be a lot more organized with way more product out for people to have. So, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of online stuff, but not like some of these other stores that are, I feel like they have to, you know, like if they don't have money coming in, they might not be able to make their rent or pay themselves or whatever, whether or not they're able to get unemployment. Um, cause that $1,200 stimulus check isn't much, you know, in the long run that might pay your rent for half a month or a month depending on how much you have to pay but I don't know it's uh I'd like to think this time off was good but I would definitely welcome back you know my jobs which would be great but I I can't wait to reopen for you know the public to come in it'll be different though like thankfully I'm not the type of store that has like 20 people in it at any time so if I have to put a limit on like, say, you know, I can only have three or four people in here and they got to wear masks and, you know, here's some sanitizer solution and gloves if that needs to happen. But, you know, I'll do everything in my power to like adhere to those new, new rules and stuff. So everything's changed. Like, uh, it's different. Like, like just life feels different now. And I know, that it's going to be different when we get to reopen again. So we'll see what happens. Do you see a scenario uh, where your business and society can return to normal again? Or do you think it's going to be a little, a little while before things get back to the way they were? I guess I can answer that two ways. So the record store, I feel that hopefully it gets back to normal. I mean, one of the reasons I don't really do curbside pickup or whatever you want to call it is because it, I don't have my inventory online, you know, like I can't, like I could browse it for you, but you're going to have to know exactly what you're looking for. So hopefully I'll be able to have customers in the store being able to browse um, soon, you know, sooner than later, because it's getting a little tiring, you know, going into three months here now or the third month. Um, And on top of that, like the restaurant I work at, I'm kind of worried because that's kind of where I make a lot of my money is, uh, making tips and you know that's the the the, uh i don't know whatever you want to call it um the sad reality of being a business owner nowadays in a very niche market is that typically you're going to have a second job which is mainly your real job (laughs) um the record store is like a sandbox for me you know it's it's fun to be there but i'm not making shitloads of money like i want to be um so that job like i'm worried that i don't know if i'll have that like come i I don't know like like i'm worried about capacities getting cut in half and stuff like that so you know i I feel sorry for the hospitality industry because i'm part of that too and i've already seen so many of my friends you know nobody's working right now and the people that are it's like you know it's it's not fun you know you've worked in that world and 
it's uh i don't know it's it's i don't know what's going to happen there and it would suck to see a lot of my friends lose their businesses because they can't operate a restaurant or a bar or whatever um, the way they used to because of a fear of getting sick so yeah to answer that question <laughs> my store i hope i can open up soon but restaurants i fear that's something it's going to be worse. We had touched on record store day a little bit. What do you think it's going to be like moving forward for that? Like, do you think that's going to be able to survive at all? Or do you think that's going to kind of die down too? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's something I didn't touch upon, but yeah, like record store day and the record fair both fall in, in April typically. And for those of you that don't know, like record store day is like the biggest day business wise for like every record store, you know, in the country, in the world. Like it, it just, all these releases come out that are exclusive to a store. You can't buy them online until, you know, all the flippers have them in their hands or the leftover stock the next day or whatever is being sold. But um, it encourages people to go into a store and without being able to go into a store, like there is no record store day. So April 18th, whatever it was this year, like got canceled. And that that's crazy. Like, um, I mean, the, a lot of the industry now, like the records, the record world kind of revolves around the Black Friday and the April record store day, because it, I mean, those are the biggest days sales for a lot of stores and it keeps them in business. So, you know, going back to me, like, thankfully, I, I don't have a lot of overhead, like I can, you know, pay my rent. It, it, it's not a lot of money, but a lot of these stores, like they might survive solely on those two days of the year like you know they might make enough money where they can pay all their rent all their utilities and a lot of their pay to some of their employees like on that one day so without that day like that really cuts into their their bank account and it it, it could cripple some of these stores and i, I don't want to see anyone close but um i guess what they're doing with record store day is like this thing called drops so I mean, it's going to have to wait until stores can open, but basically they're splitting it up into like three drops. And like, I think June was supposed to be one or July. Um, like, Hey, it's going to be a mini record store day. You know, here's like 35 of the exclusive releases for this day, go to your store and get them. And then like later in the year, they were going to do two more. Um, but I don't even know if that's going to happen. So I think the smartest record stores try not to rely on the new kind of vinyl record store day stuff to like float along. I think the smartest record stores focus on used and that's kind of where I'm at now. Like I'd rather have good used records coming into the store and going on house calls than, you know, making orders with new stuff. It's just, it's so hard to keep up and the prices just keep getting higher and higher for these wholesale rates that, you know, you pay 15 bucks wholesale for a record that sells for 20 and you know you do the math and that's barely anything and you know for every five of those you buy you might sell one of them so you're really sitting on a, a lot of negative uh income there so i guess uh kind of wrapping things up though um let everybody know what the shop's uh contact and web, web info is if they're not familiar with you already yeah so the best way to contact me is instagram it's just at needle drop records uh facebook just search needle drop records the website is needledroprecords.com and if you want to call the store it's 585-271-6785 
And I don't know. It's, it's the, those are the best ways to get in touch with me. You know, if I'm not there, leave a message. <laughs> cool, cool. Uh, and is there anything else you want to add that we didn't touch on? Uh, man, I was just trying to think of something. I don't know. I guess I guess having you here, like, I, I feel like the the shows that I talk about that like really, you know, I, I think about the most are like like you and John Twenty Five and like Rory booked. But like, I I feel like the ones that I always repeatedly talk to people about are like that first Stash Fest in like two thousand one, seeing like you know No Warning and Carry On and Thursday and Hope Conspiracy and all these bands and like you know i found my ticket because i've been like going through stuff and i found the ticket stub for like the bane show at the bug jar and i'm like man that was like that was one of the craziest experiences of my life was like seeing bane who was amazing like what i think that was 2001 right like the end yeah 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 exactly and and just like that happening at the bug jar and like just I remember when they were playing and I think was it like Bobby T or somebody was like no stage diving at all. And I just remember you being like pissed off. We were like pressed up against the stage and all of a sudden just like all hell broke loose, <laughs> you know, and just like, just how insane those shows were um, all the park lodge gigs and, and whatnot. But yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to thank you for all that. You know, it's like if, if you weren't doing it, I never would have seen that. Um, I, I probably would not be here, you know, having this conversation with you right now, if, if it weren't for people like you booking those local shows and, and making and kind of like keeping a scene going like that, you know, keeping it afloat for as long as you did. Um, you know, you gave a lot of people, especially at a young age, you gave them like a place to go and like find out who they are and like make friends that, you know, hopefully they're still friends with to this day. But yeah, man, it's not, you know, my store probably wouldn't exist without without your contribution to Rochester Hardcore. The next interview is with Jesse from Good Witch Yoga. In addition to yoga, Jesse is also involved in a variety of other activities, including playing in two bands. You'll hear more about that in this interview. All right, so describe your background and your connection to our local music scene. My connection and background to the local music scene is that um, I started going to punk and hardcore shows, um, you know, in the early 2000s, very tail end of the late 90s, and, um, you know, took photos at shows, played uh, acoustic guitar, and opened for hardcore shows. I was really involved with Students for Free Tibet. I remember one benefit show I threw um, where, like, the Marla Singer Affair played, which was one of my old faves. Um, and yeah, I played music and stuff growing up, but hardcore and punk was the first time I felt like I found people that were politically aligned with me, where music was a way to be self-expression and to stand up for what's right or unheard voices. And so it was a huge foundation to, I think, how my politics developed to this day. Explain to everyone what you do at Yoga Vibe, as well as all of your other business endeavors. I run a yoga studio called Yoga Vibe with my mom. We started it in 2015 um, as a way to offer more 
space for different kinds of bodies, bigger bodies, um, older bodies, people who aren't looking for yoga as a means of fitness or working out, but are interested in more of the spiritual and personal development or social justice sides of ways our internal practice can affect the world around us. And for me, sharing movement with people really aligned with the other stuff I do, which is arts, music. I'm a tarot reader. Um, I have found that helping people connect to themselves is usually better than trying to get them to connect with where you are and have them like come outside of themselves. That that inner work is kind of the theme with, um, I make collage art uh, that's meditative and has become a spiritual practice for me when I read tarot and share sort of tools for connection with people. Um, Our intent with the space has always been to offer people a set of tools, not necessarily tell them how to use them. And I'm guessing it's pretty self-explanatory, but exactly how has the pandemic affected all of this for you? The pandemic has affected us uh, by way of we had to close. Um, which is really challenging and hard to navigate. But realistically, yoga done in communal settings isn't safe to do right now. So we've been recording online classes and putting them on YouTube. We've been doing some live stream classes. But honestly, there's there's so many people doing good work right now in regards to yoga and movement and like body liberation that I'm actually taking this time to step back and try to figure out how to better amplify those voices. Um, It's weird. I've been doing this. I've been a yoga teacher for over half a decade and it's been the way that I feel like I'm able to affect change and help people. And so it's been hard to lose that container. Um, We're not really sure when it's going to be safe to, you know, ask people to come into a space and breathe heavy together. So when we look at guidelines for like masks and for, you know, PPE stuff, personally, I feel like it might be morally irresponsible to push that before there's a vaccine or before it's actually safe for people to be together again. So it's super complicated and it's definitely a bummer. So moving forward, I imagine it might be challenging trying to get people in hot, sweaty yoga rooms again. Do you have plans to teach yoga anytime soon? And if so, what kind of safety measures do you think will be necessary? Yeah, I started to touch on this question in my last answer, which is like, yeah, like what does it look like to get people back in a space? And I know personally, um, you know, I'm a person that's done, personally, I'm a person who's done a lot of group fitness stuff the past, you know, however, over a decade at this point, I've been involved in um, like taking yoga or doing stuff like that. And, you know, one of the things I do is acro yoga, which is touching each other. It's like acrobatics. And I don't foresee that coming back for a long, long time. I feel like it's super complicated to ask people to be exposed to someone like me, like a teacher, who isn't just exposing the eight people that came to this class. I'm hypothetically exposing eight people who expose eight people who expose eight people. Um, And I just don't know 
I just don't know if that's personally worth it or professionally worth it. I don't know what liability insurance is going to look like. I know other yoga studios that are opening up like aren't letting people rent mats and people need to bring their own props, which is a huge access issue with money and even like with transportation like maybe you ride a bike and walk and hauling around a whole bag full of bolsters and blankets and blocks isn't going to be easy to do um and it's expensive the props are not cheap so it's just it's um you know I don't know how I would teach a class in a mask would I need to be miked um would I lose my voice you know like would Yeah, I don't really have many answers for that other than I think just moving to online format is the safest thing to do right now. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to kind of just play that by ear. Do you see a return to normal for your business and society as a whole at any point in the near future? (sighs) Do I see a return to normal society? I think there's two answers to that question. And the first one is like, do we want to? You know, there were so many things about our society before all of this that were completely broken or um, just were serving oppression or systemic violence and not serving us. And I hope we don't go back to those ways. I hope we find new, better ways to support each other in our communities more grassroots ways of organizing and taking care of each other um and the other side is like yes I do think that like when we look at um pandemics from a zoomed out historical lens they you know like the Spanish flu or whatever that like eventually people do go back to other you know to more communal ways of sharing space but I don't know if it'll be for a long time. I think we would have to have a vaccine and everyone would have to get it. Like enough people would have to get it that herd immunity occurs before anyone's going to want to be in a sweaty room together. Um, I think it's really going to change. And I want to say like, yes, it could go back to some version of how it was eventually, but I really don't know what that looks like because so far... I don't feel like there's been a lot of forward progress in things actually getting better, just sort of reopening for the economy's sake or whatever, and not because it's actually safe for people to go back out. And I'm worried we're going to take like too many steps backwards to ever even get to, you know, the end of stage four, which is where New York State has deemed fitness and yoga studios. So I think we're a long ways off. What's the easiest way for people to support you while we're still in this pandemic? The best way for people to support our business during the pandemic is to take care of themselves because that's what our business is really about. Um, To be honest, it wasn't a really, (laughs) I wasn't rolling in it, you know, and we made it to a point where, you know, five years for a small business is an amazing milestone. Like we were doing it, but we weren't doing it so much that we can just keep a brick and mortar forever with no real income. So I think right now, if you did want to support us, there's a PayPal that um, yogavibe585 at Gmail is linked to that you could pay what you can and donate. But honestly, I would rather people put their money towards either Black-owned businesses or Black Lives Matter 
Uh, there's a Rochester Black Lives Matter cash app and Venmo that are open right now that are um, putting money towards bailout funds and other ways to help activists on the front lines right now. I also want to shout out Yoga for a Good Hood, which is a local organization that provides um, low to no cost yoga to communities of color and provides safe spaces for folks of color to come together and be embodied. So if you look them up, um, there's links to donate to them. So I would say like they need that money more than like I do right now. So <laughs> in case people are unfamiliar with what you do and they want to check it out after this interview, give out your web information. Our social media is at yoga vibe 585 on Instagram and Facebook. We're on Twitter, but I don't really use it that much. Um, our website is yogavibe585.com. And we have a YouTube channel, yogavibe585, if you want to check that out. My personal Instagram is at jessieamesmith, J-E-S-S-E-A-M-E-S-M-I-T-H. If you want to follow along with me and all my tarot, photography, music, yoga, activism stuff that I post there, and yeah, that's, uh, you can check out my bands. You can check out all that stuff is linked from my page. So that's how you can find us and me. So kind of wrapping things up, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add to this interview? I just want to add that I think sometimes it's hard to feel like anything we do makes a difference out in the world, but it does that <clears throat> action matters whether that's personal action you're doing your work to unlearn whatever your you know dealt hand in this life is that was toxic or not helpful for you or other people or whether you're able to financially support things that you care about or whether you're able to put your body on the front lines it's all good and the thing that we can't do right now is be inactive we can't be silent and we can't just sit back I know that that's what I learned growing up in hardcore was that we have to stand up for what's right. So anyone that's listening to this right now that is unsure if their voice needs to be heard, um, maybe it doesn't need to be about you, but your vocal and unapologetic support of things that matter in this world to you and to other people is never wrong, is never um, going to like do more harm than being silent does. So power to the people, Black Lives Matter, and uh, let's open this pit up. <laughs> the last interview of this episode is with Matt from New Ethic, a vegan pizzeria located in Rondequoit, New York. It's unfortunate this interview took place a week and a half before all of these current protests started happening because Matt is very active in social justice issues. For more information on this, as well as all the pizzas Matt serves, give New Ethic Vegan a follow on Instagram. Tell me about your upbringing, how you got into hardcore. Uh, let's see. Uh, grown up in Rochester my whole life. My grandparents uh, moved out of the city in the 60s and moved out to like Penfield Webster area. So that's where my parents settled and everything. And uh, I guess I had like a typical kind of suburban upbringing, you know, like... The whole house, yard, dogs, all that kind of kind of stuff. But, you know, I think living in that time period, too, like the growing up in the 90s and stuff, there had been that, like, lull in skateboarding where 
you know, it was kind of dying out in the late eighties, but then by the mid to late nineties, it popped back up again. And that was, you know, I think not only me, but like probably everybody born like after 89 or something or like a little bit before that even probably had a skateboard and got into that. So that was like, that was pretty big because I didn't have like a older brother or anything to hand me down his record collection. And my parents definitely weren't into punk or hardcore metal or anything close to that. But getting, getting into skateboarding, I think was like the first step of hearing music that I would have never heard before, whether it was through just skating in people's uh, driveways or wherever someone had music playing or watching a skate tape or even something as like goofy as playing like a Tony Hawk pro skater or something like hearing music that I wouldn't have heard before because the only sibling I have is like twin sister and she's definitely polar opposite than me. So I think anything I heard that was just to the left of something you'd hear on the radio piqued my interest. So I think probably late nineties was when I was hearing like pretty basic, you know, skate punk and punk and popular stuff you know like being probably 10 years old at that time i think hearing something like operation ivy or like even green day or the suicide machines or something was like a completely new world for me and i think i just kept going in that direction um i think middle school or so uh, that's why probably my big shift in even music like home life and everything my parents split up at that point and I got even more so into like trying to find something that would fill that void musically and I think some maybe like growing up in the 90s and hearing like all that ska punk stuff or even the skate punk really wasn't filling that need you know like I don't know. Listening to like Pennywise isn't exactly like, I mean, it's a good step, but it's not going to necessarily feel that frustration for you in those like preteen years, I think, at least for me. So I just kept trying to find more stuff and more stuff. And I think by the end of middle school into, you know, getting into high school is when I started finding, you know, the common like Black Flag, Minor Threat, Bad Brains and all that. And that sent me on another musical journey. And pretty much, like, if any, someone went to a show or something, it would be literally, I would go to anything. Anything where there was an instrument involved. So I was going to everywhere I could find, whether it was, like, Steel Music Hall or The Penny or whatever, or someone's garage or something. Uh, but... I think I was just really into the older hardcore and still not aware that there was like a whole burgeoning hardcore scene still alive. Like at least that fit that niche. Like there was a lot of metalcore and all that stuff, but there wasn't exactly what I was finding from the stuff in the early eighties until I, th I think somebody must've gave me like, give blood or something or or there was an interview i saw where those older bands were mentioned by somebody who was in a newer band and like bane got brought up or something so i feel like 
probably Bane was the first band, like modern, quote unquote, modern hardcore band that really turned me on to knowing like, oh, there, this stuff is still relevant. Because if you will, if you picked up like uh, that book, the, the Ameri- America's Hardcore book or whatever, that pretty much cuts off at like 85. And you're like, oh, I guess that's the end of that. And if you don't have someone who's going to show you, oh, hey, this stuff's still around, then you think it's all but dead. And I think a lot of the kids that I went to school with had that in mind that if you, it was split, like either you listen to hardcore punk and it was stuff that died out a long time ago, or it was people who used that term for other music that didn't really qualify. So I think probably getting into Bane was the biggest thing. And that was just like, after that point, I had to go to really find everything that was involved with hardcore and that, and even if I couldn't find something that was like at the point where I was like, Oh, I just get, have to start trying to play it myself or something. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I had a similar exposure to it. I mean, I tried to do the skateboarding thing when I was younger, but I could never figure out how to do an Ollie. So I kind of gave <laughs> up after a summer of that. And, um, I listened to a lot of like punk rock stuff in the beginning because my friend and I when we were in junior high. It was when like Rancid and all his bands were kind of blowing up. Oh yeah, um, and I still love like Outcome the Wolves and that first Suicide Machines record's still really good. But but like you, I had to kind of find more aggressive music because kind of uh, skanking at a show wasn't really for me. I mean, you know, uh, maybe skanking to a hardcore band, but not to a to a ska band. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I get it. And a lot of people, I think, kind of got exposed to Bane. I mean, they were really popular, definitely around here, and it seems like everywhere. Um. But yeah, I guess, uh, how much experience did you have in the service industry uh, before you opened New Ethic? Um, I think probably even going back to high school at like different levels. Uh, like after my parents split up, definitely money was tight. And growing up in Webster was like kind of a weird thing for me, especially being into that kind of music and all of that. Like, I'm listening to, like, dudes like Roger Merritt talking about, like, the Lower East Side. And then I'm, like, growing up in Webster where everybody has a fucking, like, five-car garage. So I knew at that point, like, if I am going to try to keep up with those people at some level, even if I wanted to get a new skateboard or something, that I couldn't just go ask for it and expect it to pop up. So uh, I've got a job sometime during those high school years at a, a farm called Bowman's. And that was just like, literally the really like seeing that backside of that. So from that point, pretty much every job I had after that until now has been food related. So I went from there to doing prep work at a senior home. And then when I was at Nazareth, I was working at Wegmans and in the pizza department and the, prepared foods department and then around that time uh my mom actually met somebody who had a pizzeria in Rondequate. um uh and he was like a, a prayetti if like if you're from rochester you kind of know that name uh so i was getting out of college i was you know i think i don't know if i got married yet at that point or was about to but around that time got married, got out of college, didn't wanted to leave Wegmans, but I needed like direct income. So I 
went right to working with my, you know, my, my mother's husband. And that was like a cool side to see more of like the history with the food and getting like a real view of it. And bef- I mean, ultimately, like I always was cooking or something with my, my mother and my grandmother, but that was like always something in my life, I guess. Yeah, so I guess kind of touching on the the college thing. Did you did you go to school for business then, or did you just kind no, of happen no, no. to learn the industry? I okay. just I guess I just learned it from working in it, which I think is kind of common, I guess, for at least a lot of like the people in my position. That I don't know. I I see like a a lot of like aging, hardcore dudes or whatever you want to call them, or like all doing their own businesses. Like I always think that's such an interesting thing. Yeah, that's something I definitely learned from doing this series of interviews is like I knew like I, I had reached out to Rory pretty, pretty quickly and a couple other people. And then Rory and I got to talk and, and he started telling me about all those other people that had businesses. And I was like, I kind of knew some of them did. And then some of them I kind of didn't know about. And I was like, man, it's crazy how many people, you know, from the hardcore yeah, scene. Interesting. Yeah, um, I guess we'll get to that to, to that topic in a second because I have a question related to that. Um, but uh, yeah, tell everybody about New Ethic Pizza, though, and how, how that all came about. Uh, so, I mean, let's see, I, from the time of like high school, I probably was flirting with the whole, uh, animal rights stuff and really dove into it after, after, uh, high school into the college years and stuff like getting more educated and obviously still listening to hardcore and hearing all that influence in there. Uh, so I, I went vegan during that point in time and you know, being in college and working those other food industry jobs, it was kind of this strange thing where I was getting like involved in like animal rights and all that stuff, but I was still working with that food. And it was kind of a weird thing for me to do that. But when I was working with my stepfather, I was kind of like, hey, you know, like this whole vegan thing, isn't that weird? Like, even if you don't want to ever go vegan, like there's so much opportunity to you know eat a little healthier or whatever you know even if you look at it from a business point of view you're going to bring in more people so i i don't think he was ultimately that interested in it at first um but then i made a suggestion because i i think it was because of rory doing his like coffee pop-ups i was like oh that's kind of interesting and i was like how about i do a pizza pop-up so I guess a couple of years ago or so I suggested that and he's like, uh, what the hell? Like how, how much could, you know, how could that hurt to try that? But the first night we did the pizza pop up, it was like, I don't know. It was insane. There was like people all down the sidewalk and everything. And I think that was the moment that it clicked for, for him that, Oh, like this is, this is actually a thing. Like, like we can't ignore that. And I, and I, that's what I was trying to tell him all along especially after going to places like strong hearts and Syracuse and stuff that I just saw that the rest, some other places in the country were having success with it. And I, I knew like how quickly that, that the uh, vegan, whatever, if you call it movement diet, whatever was had grown. So in such a short amount of time that it, like there was no way that it was going to slow down. Like even I realized like, today is the 25th uh anniversary of destroying the machines coming out and that's like wild to me that in that 25 year span that like these dudes were singing about it 
at the Lost Horizon. And then you have like restaurants, you know, you have like a place in Syracuse with an Earth Crisis milkshake. And my my place is named after an Earth Crisis song. So to me, it's just kind of wild to think how much it's progressed. Yeah, no, it definitely has. Um, I got into hardcore like a, a year or two after that album came out, and and I definitely had that album. And and obviously, hardcore is what turned me on to being a vegetarian, and and eventually, I finally did the vegan thing too because of it. Um, and it's just cool to see like all these different ethics and ideas, uh, no pun intended, I guess, yeah. um, <laughs> that have that have come from this. Um, but I guess with that in mind, what kind of ideas and values have you learned uh, from hardcore that you've been able to use in your business? Oh, I see. I think anybody who has some sort of background like in whatever quote-unquote underground culture whether it's hip-hop or skateboarding or whatever you do small on that small scale is going to have an advantage over somebody who maybe had it handed to him or something like you you end up working a lot harder in that on that side whether you're like hardcore or punk or whatever like being in a band you're some you've got to fill shirt orders you got to make your own demos all that stuff make flyers and all that so to me like all that stuff i already had knowledge of so going into the pop-up it was like oh, oh i'm just booking a show every month to do and even going to this that's like i view my restaurant more like it's a, a band or i'm booking a show than it is a restaurant which i don't know if that's good or bad but it seems to have worked. I, I think it's kind of a similar a similar idea. Like I've 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 never really run a, an actual business per se. I guess I've kind of tried doing things with like you know booking big shows and, and running a record label and stuff. And um, you know maybe after this pandemic clears up, I wouldn't mind trying to open up some sort of restaurant myself down the road. But I definitely think there's a there's a pretty good correlation there. Uh, I mean you're like when I would be booking shows, you're, like you don't know how many people are going to show up that night, and obviously. It's kind of a, a gamble, mm-hmm. and I feel like, uh, especially the restaurants, the same thing. Like I, I've I've been a manager in restaurants, and you can kind of project like how many people, you know, come in on like a Friday or whatever. But you don't know if it's going to be like that every single Friday. You know exactly. what I mean? And, and I definitely think that there's there's a, a comparison there for sure. Um, so I guess you had pretty much uh, I don't know the exact amount of time, but I, well, my girlfriend keeps pays more attention to this stuff because she's on that. Uh, rochester vegan facebook page yeah and she kept men- she kept mentioning to me that you open up the restaurant like because i was off social media for a long time so i wasn't really paying as much attention to stuff um so she was all excited to check out your restaurant and then obviously the pandemic hit so i guess how long were you open and, and obviously uh how did it affect the business at that point uh, we did our last pop-up last summer and then we opened up in the first week of september and it it was really it was really like nonstop since September. So like for me, I didn't even like once the pandemic hit, I was like, Oh shit, something happened. Like there was finally a, a line in the sand that I'm like, Oh, what have we been doing for all these months? Cause it was that busy. But then everything started coming out that we had to cut staff and uh, get rid of the tables and all that other stuff. And it was really, really difficult to uh, maintain maintain like a, a restaurant at that scale when you have you know a quarter of the staff so we were busy the last week we were open but i you know like i looked at myself and i was like i don't think i could do this volume of business every day like it is it nice sure 
but it you know that would that really wears people down and i've seen other businesses right now who are you know exhausting themselves uh luckily luckily we were that successful beforehand or you know i don't think we we would have been able to close it it's hard to it's hard to close your business for a day let alone months on end but uh you know it's it's been okay i'm i'm excited to get back to it but you know it it definitely it definitely has affected us hard to say that it couldn't yeah and i guess um do you have a reopen date in mind and i guess with that in mind too do you think that it'll be easy for you to, to get your, your regular clientele to come back pretty quickly at that point uh we are we're looking for june 11th that's the goal obviously it it seems like things have been changing daily or weekly or whatever but you know i hope we can do it then but it is tricky because i my main concern too has been to keep like everybody safe and everything like i don't want to put any employees or customers at risk but um i i think we'll, we'll probably be just as busy as when we stopped like i still I still get tons of messages every day asking me like, oh, oh, I tried to call, but you know, are you guys in today? So I don't, I think, I think it'll be okay when we get back. Yeah, and I guess with the safety, with the safety thing in mind, uh, what kind of safety measures do you have in mind to implement upon reopening? Uh, when we, before we closed, we only did curbside pickup. Um, we cut the staff down. So, it was just a really a couple people working, uh, but then you know obviously we have to wear a mask and all that other stuff. But you know, uh, I think we plan on only opening three days, kind of cut the cut the hours down too, and just you know take it every week, see what happens. Yeah, the mask thing is going to be really interesting. Uh, I'm going back to work this Friday, and uh, I wore a mask. Cause I was talking to a buddy outside the other day and then I had to go take my bike in. So I was wearing a mask out and it was hot out and I was like, man, it's going to be really hot this summer wearing this mask. And I can only imagine in a pizza shop what it's going to be like having to wear a mask all day, you know? Yeah. I, see, I've seen, I've stopped in a couple of places to pick up food and stuff and it's just, it already, it looks like a very difficult task to do in a mask. Yeah, no, definitely. My girlfriend got me these, like, uh, I don't even know how to put them on, but they're, like, things to put on your ears so the mask doesn't, like, hurt your ears as much. But I'm more worried because I wear glasses, so it's going to be all foggy, and, and, like, it makes your makes your nose all itchy, too. So just kind of see how that all goes. Um, so I guess, uh, do you see a scenario, like, I think you kind of touched on it by saying that you think business will be fine, but do you, do you see a scenario where, like, businesses and society in general can return to normal, or do you think we're going to be kind of living like this for a while? Um, I, I think of like history is any indication and probably probably going to take a year or two for things to be any sort of normal. But then uh, on the other hand, like we've seen all the, the problems that this is exposed or, you know, people already knew about but ignored like how people can't be out of work. You know, there's no people don't have safety nets to be out of work. And that shows that there's there's a problem an economic problem uh, you, you know that there's the health the healthcare side of it that you know you get covid or something you can't even afford to pay for your bill so it's always like you know what will 
what will normal ever look like after this? And I think that's probably that's probably a question that I don't even know if any anybody could tell us. Yeah, and I don't even know if the experts really are 100 percent sure what, what it's going to be like moving forward. Um, so I guess we're kind of getting ready to wrap up the interview then. Um, give everyone your contact info and your web info in case they don't know about you and they're interested in checking out the restaurant. Uh, we're on uh, Instagram if you look up New Ethic Vegan. And we're also on Facebook, uh, New Ethic Pizzeria and Cafe. All right, cool. And is there anything else you wanted to add to the interview? Uh, just, you know, if you're if you're an old hardcore head, always just revisit those albums, you know, whether it's like Destroy the Machines, or if you have like the Green Rage or something, or even going back to uh, Victim in Pain, just like revisit that. Remember why you were into hardcore in the first place. And then after that, try to check out some new bands. Cause really like I, one of the things I see a lot of older people say, or even now I'm like, I'm now I'm at 30. So I'm at that like halfway point where a lot of my friends kind of, some of them bailed on it. Uh, and I see a lot of people saying like, oh, hardcore isn't as good as it used to be. And I like to me at 30, like in getting into it, you know, half my life ago, it's like, I, it, I think it's almost a renaissance period. Like check out Triple B records, uh, check out Plead Your Case records. There's so many, there's so much hardcore out right now. It's insane. That wraps up episode 11. Special thanks to Jesse, Russ, and Matt for doing these interviews with me. Make sure you support their businesses when you get the chance, as well as all other local businesses. As always, thanks to my family for all the support. Coming up on the next couple episodes, there will be interviews with Ruben Lipkind and Brendan Pore. As always, you can find more information at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com.